Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. In the uh, next two lessons, we'll be dealing with um, some of the aspects from last week. Um, Last week, Pastor Matt led you through the doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, Remember, two weeks ago when we started, we did a study on the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I know that's a big word, but we've used it enough by now. Hopefully, you're kind of getting used to hearing it, incarnation, pre-incarnate. The incarnation, remember the in-fleshing or the uh, in-meeting, M-E-A-T, in-meeting of the Son. So, the Son of God who is eternal, God the Son who is eternal, who has no beginning, who was not created, uh, comes into the world in the man Jesus Christ in what we call the incarnation. So two weeks ago, we looked at the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, the eternal Son of God who was there from all eternity, who was there at creation, who is the creator, who spoke creation, who worked through the Old Testament uh, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, We looked at that, that aspect of Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Matt led you through the incarnation or the infleshing of that eternal son. So Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, is the incarnation as the son of man. He is the incarnation of the son of God. And it's important for us to understand that in the incarnation, in the infleshing of God as a human being, The fullness of deity, we'll talk about that word in a minute, the fullness of his deity is not lost or taken away or diminished. So the eternal God, God the Son, who shares fully and equally in the one divine essence of God, does not cease to be God when he becomes a man. And he does not cease to become Uh, anything less than God. He's not less than, he's not a fraction. He is true God and true man, even in his incarnation. So this goes against some of the popular opinions, maybe about who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus as just a good man. Jesus as just a teacher, a prophet, uh, a guide, maybe a spiritual guide that people lean on and they say, oh, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, Uh, even more than a guru. No, the Christian faith has always declared that Jesus Christ in his incarnation is nothing less and no one less than God in human flesh. He is the incarnation of the one and only true living God. Okay, so this week we're going to talk about what that means. We had the pre-incarnate Christ the incarnation last week and this week uh, we're going to begin talking uh, this week and next week about the deity of Christ and then next week the humanity of Christ. So let's go ahead and talk about that big word I keep using, the deity of Christ. The deity of something 
refers to his godhood or his godness. Okay, in this case, we're talking about Jesus. And so when we're talking about the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, we're talking about the fact that he is, as I've been saying, the eternal God in human flesh. Okay, eternal God, the deity, the godhood, or the godness of Christ. One of the classic passages used to uh, talk about the incarnation is Philippians chapter 2. I know y'all did that briefly last week. Let's look at that passage together as we sort of use this as our our springboard for the rest of our talk. Philippians chapter 2, just three verses, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. I... I always hesitate to not put this verse in context, these verses in context, because um, we sort of pick up here and talk about the humiliation of Jesus, and then we always love, you know, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the exaltation of Jesus. But the, the context of Philippians 2 is actually how we treat one another. And, and Paul is talking to the Philippian Christians about how we should put others before ourselves and put the needs of others in our church before ourselves, serving them and their preferences before we serve our own. And then he uses Jesus as the chief example of that. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to show us how Jesus humiliated himself for us by dying on the cross, but nevertheless was exalted. So we have to remember the context, but tonight we're just going to look at that one middle part on the incarnation and the humiliation of Jesus. Look at Philippians 2. Um, let's start reading in verse 6. Philippians 2, 6. Who, this is talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay? Now, just a few uh, simple notes here from this, these short three verses. Number one, Jesus is equal with God. Now, we're going to talk about this a little later. That is not to say that Jesus is the same person as God the Father, nor is it to say that Jesus is the same person as the Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll talk about those distinctions in a minute. In fact, the fact that Paul uses the word with shows us that there is a unity, but there is also a distinction. We'll talk about that in the doctrine of the Trinity in just a few moments. But verse 6 teaches very clearly Jesus is equal with God. Although he was, uh, when are we talking about? When was the was? Well, before he became a man. The pre-incarnate Christ was equal with God. And he did not count that equality with God, as God, something to be grasped. Now, that means that he did not selfishly cling to it. Okay? We're talking about how he gave up that to become a man and, and to suffer for us and to die for us. So he did not cling to those rights as God in a selfish way. But he was, before his incarnation, <clears throat> equal with God. Number two, Jesus emptied himself. That's what we read in verse 7. But 
emptied himself. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped or selfishly held onto, but he emptied himself. But I want you to notice this little participle here. How did Jesus empty himself? Because we can get into a lot of trouble if we misread this verse. There's a lot of heresy that goes on around Christmas time when people begin to read this verse and they talk about Jesus emptying himself, maybe even in people's minds, that he empties himself of his deity. That when he becomes a man, he is no longer God, or he gives up some portion of what it means to be God. Notice what Paul says there in verse 7. What kind of emptying is this? Verse 7, he emptied himself by what? By, say just the next word, by Verse 7, everybody there? But emptied himself by taking. All right? Jesus emptied himself by taking. We're going to come to that in a little while. This, what theologians have called subtraction by addition. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself? How did he pour himself out? By taking. Not by leaving his godhood behind, not by ceasing to be God but by taking on human form and becoming a man. Verse 8, being found in human form. Okay, so it's important that we get this whole picture. Jesus, who was with God, remember John 1, 1, who was with God, but who also was God, John 1, 14, becomes flesh. Philippians 2 he was equal with God, but he did not grasp onto that selfishly, but emptied himself, not of his godhood, but emptied himself by taking on human flesh in the incarnation. So here are some serious errors that we have to avoid when talking about Jesus as God. Jesus in his incarnation did not stop being God. He did not become less than God. His godhood was not diminished or fractured or severed or changed. The eternal divine nature cannot be changed. And so none of that was changed in the incarnation. Jesus did not become God by either ceasing to be God and then becoming God again or maybe he was never God in some false teaching and through his obedience and exaltation became God, maybe as, in, as Mormonism would teach. He did not become God. Jesus is not another God. The New Testament could have been, I mean, I know we're talking about a bunch of Jewish disciples, especially the Apostle Paul and Peter, uh, but if they wanted to say, hey, there's actually two gods, they would have said that. They never say that. There's one God, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, it, it kind of sounds like he makes a distinction there. There's one God and there's one Lord, but there's really no distinction at all there in what he's saying. He's saying there is one true and eternal God, and there is one true and eternal Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he who was always God in his incarnation does not cease to be God, he does not need to become God because he is God, but he's not another God. He is the one and only true and living God. 
Here's an important one. Jesus is not a fraction. Jesus is not half man, half God. He's not three quarters man, a quarter God. It's not that Jesus' body is one thing, and then he's filled up with the godness and the other thing. Um, can't remember how many, how many different ways I've heard this described. And it, really, when it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to the person of Jesus and these things, it's just hard to attach illustrations to it. When you start trying to explain it with illustration and cutesy little pictures, we always get it wrong somehow. So it's best just to use the language that we're going to learn uh, here later. But needless to say, Jesus is not a fraction. In Greek mythology, you have demigods, right? You have uh, the mythical gods who procreate with human beings, and then you get this sort of half-breed like Hercules, half-god, half-man kind of thing. That is not uh, the Christian teaching on the incarnation of Jesus. We don't have a half-man, half-god, or two parts that are put together to make up this thing. Okay, Jesus is not a fraction. Are you ready for another big word? This is a fun one. We're going to break it down together. The hypostatic union. Now, you uh, people that are familiar with medical terminology in here, you should know some of this stuff. Uh, hypo, or hupo, as it would be said in, in Greek, means under. Right? Like a hypodermic needle. It goes under the dermis, under the skin. Right? If you have hypothermia, it means your body temperature is below what it needs to be, right? So under, below, hypo. Static is just coming from this Greek word stasis or stasis, which just kind of means the substance. So when we talk about the hypostatic or the hypostasis of someone, we're talking about the actual substance of a thing or person. In other words, if I were to peel back who you think you are as a human being and say this is who you really are, that's what we're talking about. So when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, in this case we're talking about the incarnate son, Jesus. When we're talking about him, we're asking the question, who or what is he really? What's under there? What's under the hood? And in that hypostasis, we see what theologians have called a union. The under substance of the person of Jesus is that he is one person, but with two natures. Again, not half God, half man, not fractions of either. But as we've been talking about, truly God and truly man. Uh, some say fully God, fully man. That's okay. Some people quabble with that terminology. I understand what they're saying. But all it means is that he's truly God and, and he's truly man. So the hypostasis under the hood of the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is this. This is the substance. This is the essence of who he is. He's one person but he has two natures. You are one person, and you have one nature, right? You are who you are, and you have a human nature, period. Nothing else is mixed in there that you have. You're not incarnate of something or reincarnated of something. You are one human being. That is your substance. That is who you are. That is what you are. Comprised of all the things that make us human, that is your nature. 
This is why I take issue when people call, um, when people say stuff about their, their sin nature, right? As if you have some other side of you that's there, your other nature, your sin nature. We should say our sinful nature, not our sin nature. We don't have like alter egos. And that's not what's meant by the word nature anyway. Again, with Jesus, we're not talking about different roles or masks or alter egos. We're talking about this one person who is truly God and truly man, okay? So our sinful human nature, but we only have one nature, whereas Jesus had two. So how does this work? I mean, it sounds great to get up here and say this and to recite creeds and um, the history of the Christian church. And in two weeks, we'll talk about some of these historical developments and why we don't believe this and why we do confess this and what's wrong with this teaching versus this teaching. We'll get into that um, in two weeks. But tonight, talking about the person of Jesus, how does this all work? How does it all work with, with Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit and this hypostatic union stuff? Well, here's what I find um, helpful just to take apart one big truth at a time. And the first and most obvious big truth in the scripture that we need to cover first is that there is only one God. There is only one God. Let's turn to these scriptures together. I'm going to read them fast, so stay with me. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Down in verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Over in Deuteronomy 6.4, maybe most famous, famously from the, the Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, the Lord Yahweh is one Lord. He is one. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, right? There's no God beside me. There is no other God. There is only one Lord, one God. All right, let's go to the book of Isaiah. We'll be here for a few of these. Isaiah, a couple books to the right, a good chunk, starting in Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, verse 16. I'll give you a minute to get there. Isaiah 
Isaiah 37, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of earth, you have made heaven and earth. You are the God, the prophet says. Verse 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. You alone are Yahweh. Uh, look over at chapter 43 of Isaiah. And remember, when you're dealing with the prophets in the Old Testament, you're, you're dealing with um, men called of God to minister to the people of God who are at that time surrounded by all these pagan nations and all their idols and all their false gods, and they are tempted, like those other nations, to just go ahead and bring in all that false worship and all those false gods into their worship. The, the pagan nations around Israel didn't have any problem with Yahweh. The Philistines and everyone else had no real problem with Yahweh. They respected Yahweh as the God of the Israelites, but they had their own gods, so they thought. Their kingdom had their God, and you have your God, and there's a God for this and a God for that, and thousands upon millions of gods. For every nation, every people, every part of creation, whatever it was, you name it, they said, that's fine, there's a God for that. Israel stands alone, and you hear this in the words of the prophets, and that the Lord is emphatic. Not only am I the God of Israel, I'm the God of all nations and all kingdoms, heaven and earth, everything above, everything beneath, everything in between. There is no other besides me. It's not that this is your God and this is my God. There is one Lord, one God, Yahweh, the one true and living God. That's the message of the prophets, and that's what Isaiah is rehearsing here. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Look at chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Now there's something interesting, isn't it? In our Trinitarian perspective. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, who is also Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, even there in that one little verse... You see the, union, the unity of God. I am one God, one Lord. Besides me, there's no other. But how many are speaking? Well, at least two. Yahweh, the King of Israel, and also, oh, uh, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, who is also called the Redeemer. And yet the Bible says, this is but one God and one Lord. Uh, look at verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid, for uh, um, I have not told you from old and declared it, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I do not know any. Uh, look at chapter 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. 
there is none besides me. Chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now, we could go through thousands of texts in the Old Testament and prove, maybe you don't need it tonight, and prove that there is only one God. I mean, that, that's the central message of the Old Testament is that there is one true and living God. You should worship and serve him, not all the other gods around you. And that's Israel's main problem is turning to other gods and God condemns them and punishes them for doing that. Turn to me, the one living, true, only God. So this is just a sampling of the thousands of verses in the Old Testament that tell us that there is only one God. When you come into the New Testament, you don't have a switch of theology. Uh, Jesus, as Jesus of Nazareth, is a Jewish man. He's a Jewish boy. He's raised in the synagogues. He is raised hearing the Shema day and night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus knows these verses. Right? Jesus quotes that verse. When he's asked in Mark chapter 12 and other places in the Gospels, when he's asked, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Remember what Jesus says the greatest commandment is? The same thing the Old Testament says it is. There is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where just a few verses before it said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we don't have a change in our monotheism when we turn the page into the New Testament. We don't add another God. Oh, and then add the Holy Spirit so we end up with three gods, as, as Mormonism teaches. We have to make sense of this somehow. The whole scripture teaches us that there is only one God, only one Lord. Now, in most people's minds, we don't have to argue too much about the Father. I don't, I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any false teachings or cults out there who, who start off with saying, oh, the, the Father also is not God. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the Father, who they call Jehovah, is God, right? But that Jesus was his first creation. Jesus isn't God, but the Jehovah, the Father, is God. Um, there have been some, some back and forth over different denominations and different false teachings over the centuries about the nature of the Father, but most people agree, and we can at least agree, that the Father in himself is God. But our question tonight is, then what about the Son? What do we do with the Son? And we'll get to the Holy Spirit in a whole separate series. Now, tonight we're dealing with the person of Jesus, the Son, God the Son. What do we do with him? Well, remember John chapter 1, verse 1. You should just always have that verse ready to go because it answers so much in just a few words. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, not the Bible, but Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, what's that word? The Word was with God, but the Word was also God. Now, John doesn't take a long time to explain how this works, and I don't think he needs to. Um, we just need to look at that mystery and accept it for what it is. That in the person of Jesus, in the eternal Son, there is a withness with God, 
but there's also a oneness. He's with God in that there is a distinction between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But that distinction is not a division. And that distinction is not a separation. Because just as much as the Son is with God, the Son is God. Later in John chapter 1, verse 18, uh, remember what John says, no one has ever seen God. But then he says, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's some convoluted language if I've ever heard it, but just listen to the beauty of what he's saying. No one has ever seen the actual divine nature and essence of God. And God told Moses if anyone did see that, they would what? They would die. (laughs) So no one's ever seen that. No one's ever seen God. But then John uses this weird language, but the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, who is that? It's Jesus. He has made him known. God coming to reveal and to explain God. But it's not the same person because there's also the witness who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I I had this in your diagram, this diagram in your handout on the very first session. I wanted to uh, hit it again tonight as we talk about the the nature of the Son. This is just a classic way of explaining the doctrine of the Trinity. You can see that there is but one divine singular name of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some praise music. Praise break. Um, I want you to notice that, that, that this is interest, this is this has been helpful for me. The word God is not God's name. We can address God by saying God, but if he were to, you know, write a letter to us, which he did in the, in the Bible, I guess you could say, if he were write a letter to us and, and, and sign it at the end, he would not, he'd probably not say God. God is not the name of God or who he is. God is what he is. Okay, does that make sense? The, the, that word God, Elohim, means high, mighty, exalted. Okay, so when, it, it's helpful for me when we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because when I was little, I used to get so confused about this whole thing. Well, the Father is God, but Jesus is also God, and the Holy Spirit is also God, but they're not the same. That was very confusing for me because I was thinking of God as being one person. I was thinking that's his name. He's the old guy with the beard. He sits up in the clouds. That's God. And he's himself, but well, Jesus is also him, and then the Holy Spirit is also him. That makes no sense. Well, because I was misunderstanding the nature of God. God is not the name so much as the what what God is, as high and mighty and exalted. There is but one divine essence, one divine nature, one divine substance. And of that singular substance and essence, there is just one living, true God. 
But in the doctrine of the Trinity, we have three distinct persons, all mentioned in Scripture in different times and ways, who all bear the characteristics of the one God. We have the one who is addressed as Father. Now, even in the New Testament, uh, so, so even if you have this sort of mindset where the Father uh, becomes the Son, and there's no more Father, now there's just the Son, you've you got a problem with the New Testament because Jesus is always addressing the Father. So the Father exists at the same time as the Son, even after the Incarnation, as it was from all eternity. And then you throw the Holy Spirit in there, and He's called God, and He's worshipped, and He's prayed to, and He is uh, adored and magnified, along with the Son, Jesus, and along with the Father. And we, we kind of come away from that thinking, what's going on here? Well, of that one divine essence, the one divine substance of God, of which there's no division and no multiplication and no addition, just one. The Father, as a unique, distinct person, shares fully in the divine essence. The Father, we could say it this way, is in and of himself God. The Son shares in that one divine essence so that we could say the Son in and of himself is God. The Holy Spirit in and of himself is God. Now see, this is why our illustrations break down. Because as soon as you start using illustration, you start going into some sort of heresy one way or the other. Uh, we've talked about this before, but just so we, we refresh ourselves, um, the egg has been used as an illustration of the Trinity. Kind of like an egg, you've got a, a shell, a white, and a yolk, and that's three parts, and when you put them together, that make up, make up an egg. The, the problem with that is the yolk, in and of itself, is not an egg, right? The white, in and of itself, is not an egg, right? If you've ever eaten egg whites, you know that is the case. An <laughs> egg shell, certainly, in and of itself, is not an egg. This is a heresy called partialism, where we make the Trinity parts of God. Again, remember, Jesus is not a fraction, neither is the Trinity. It's not one-third plus one-third plus one-third, okay? We're not talking about parts coming together like a transformer uh, or something to, to make up God or putting a pie piece together uh, to make up God. Uh, another one you might have heard is... Um, well, let's just go with the one about, like, me, Matt, and how I, I'm, I'm one person, but I can be a father, husband, uh, pastor, son, grandson. I'm one person, but I have these different roles. The, the problem with that is that in the Trinity, we don't have one person who is acting in different roles and becoming different things, right? The son has always been the son. The Father has always been the Father, and the Spirit has always been the Spirit. So see in the outer section here, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. The Son is not or the, the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And that's an important distinction. Because Jesus in his incarnation is praying as the eternal Son to his Father. We saw uh, in, in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit 
intercedes between us and the Father, as does Jesus interceding. There's no intercession if you're talking about the same person. Okay, if Jesus is the Father, or if the Holy Spirit is the Father, and there's a mixture of who they are, then Paul wouldn't say that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He would just say the Holy Spirit hears our prayers, which he does. But he goes further, the Holy Spirit interceding. Jesus would not be a mediator between us and anything if he were the same person as the Father. But the Son is the mediator between two parties, namely mankind and God the Father. So we have to remember, one, here's the the classic um, uh, theological formula, one divine essence, three persons. Three persons. Now, talking to my daughter, Anna, about the nature of persons is a fun thing. Um, because when we think a person, we think of a, a human being, right? He, there's a person, there's a person, there's a, <laughs> there's a person. And so if we're thinking that way, like as an individual human being, this, this also can be confusing. What we mean by the word person is that there is a mind, there's a will, there's emotions, there's relatability, there's relationship, there's communication. That's what makes a person separate from a tree or a frog or a car. Those are not persons because they don't have personality. Okay? So we're not talking about three people. That's the wrong word. We're talking about three persons. There is a mind, there's a will, there's emotions, there's grieving, there's hurting, there's compassion, there's wrath. All of those emotions and those attributes within the Godhead. We're not, we're not talking about uh, a stagnant force in the air. There's a person. And that person is the Father, that person is the Son, the person is the Holy Spirit within the union of the Trinity. The old uh, Athanasian Creed would tell us that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. But there are not three Lords, but one Lord. That the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. And again, how this works and how we're able to wrap our minds around that I can't tell you. All I know is that as soon as people start to try, and as soon as we start to try to put ourselves above what Scripture teaches and start to make formulas of our own without deriving them from Scripture, we very quickly, every time, get into some sort of false teaching about who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is. One divine essence, three persons. Three persons who share wholly and fully in the one essence of God. Again, not parts, not modes of the one person, but one God, one essence, and three persons. So when we're talking about Jesus, Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal Son. The full essence of God and human flesh should be is 
Jesus is the God-man. So in the incarnation, it is not the Father who becomes a man. It is not the Holy Spirit who becomes a man. But it is the Son who becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And as the Son incarnate, He is fully God, fully man, Jesus, the God-man. Now, in two weeks, next week we'll talk about the humanity of Christ, and that's an important subject. In two weeks, we're going to talk about some historical considerations. So starting from even the, the pages of Scripture, we're going to talk about some of the historical controversies that have arisen over the nature of Jesus. Um, oftentimes, what the biblical writers are dealing with, it seems, uh, Paul, especially John in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, what it seems the biblical writers are dealing with in the New Testament is um, not so much that Jesus is God, but they're, they're having to struggle with people who are saying he's not truly man. You know, if you read 1st John, the, the false teaching he's having to go after again and again and again is that these people are saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. That if he was God, he must have just been a spiritual creature or an angel or, or some sort of vision, but he couldn't have become flesh. Why would God become filthy, nasty flesh? And John is having to deal with that false teaching. The false teaching doesn't stop there, though, because within 200 years, they are arguing over whether or not Jesus is truly God. And at the Council of Nicaea, the church has to decide, are we going to say Jesus is truly God without beginning and without end? Or are we going to say that he was the first creation of God? That he might be mighty and he might be great, but he's not God himself. Of course, the Council of Nicaea sides with Scripture that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He doesn't have a beginning and he will not have an end. But these controversies just keep on coming and keep on coming. And they don't stop. They take on different names over the centuries. They take on different denominations and different leaders and different <coughs> titles over the centuries. But this is the same false teachings keep appearing. And we're going to talk about that in, in two weeks uh, on the nature of Jesus Christ. But tonight, all I wanted to do very simply is ask, what does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? Well, let, let's look first at uh, Hebrews 13. First tonight, number one, Jesus receives glory Jesus receives glory Hebrews 13 verses 20 through 21 Hebrews 13 20 through 21 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, I, this is an easy question, but if you turn, turn to any Old Testament prophet, especially Isaiah, and you ask, Isaiah, who does God share his glory with? What's the answer? Nobody. God shares his glory with no one. So when we go to these doxologies in the New Testament, it should be, and it probably was in that time, it should be jarring to us to see that, that along with God the Father, who raised again the Lord Jesus from the dead, along with God the Father, also Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. 
Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, 11. First Peter 4, 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, Jesus, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not only glory in that instance, but dominion, lordship, rulership, sovereignty, the kingdom. That also, Peter says, belongs to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus receives prayer. You don't have to turn here, but in in John 16, um, Jesus is talking to the disciples before he goes to the cross. And he's talking about once he departs from them, that he wants them to pray to him. I want you to pray to me so that I may send the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, good Jewish men, the disciples, a Jewish man, Jesus, requiring that his disciples pray to him. And here's the interesting thing. Not not just talking to him or asking him a question when he's right there in the room. But after I'm dead and ascended, Jesus says, pray to me. Talk to me as you would pray to God. Jesus receives prayer. In Acts chapter 1, again, you don't have to turn here either. Uh, the disciples are trying to figure out what to do uh, now that Judas has, has killed himself. And they don't know how to fill that 12th spot amongst the apostles. And so they pray to Jesus. And throughout the book of Acts, we see this several times, where they address prayers directly to the Lord Jesus. Now, if Jesus is not God... Um, Certainly, God does not share his glory with him. But if Jesus is not God, then why do, they, why do they pray to him? Why are prayers being addressed to this one if he is not, in fact, God? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. You don't have to turn there either. Y'all know this passage. It's, it's where Paul um, is experiencing a thorn in his flesh. Remember, and he's praying about it. And he's praying to God. But he also gives this little nuance as if he's praying to Christ. So as you turn throughout the pages of the New Testament again and again and again, you see Jesus being prayed to as if he can hear prayers and as if he can answer prayers. And who else can hear prayers and answer prayers except God? Uh, Jesus receives worship. Let's, let's do turn here to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 19. Uh, yeah, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, we'd say that and say, oh, making melody to the Lord. Well, that's, that's not saying anything about Jesus. Well, look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord. And who is the Lord? Jesus Christ. So if you, you put those two verses together and you go back to verse 19, and Paul is telling us to make melody in our hearts to the Lord, and he says that the Lord is Jesus Christ, 
then he is saying that it is okay to sing songs of praise, to sing songs of thanksgiving, not just to God the Father, but that we can sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus, who clearly receives worship in the same way that God the Father receives worship. Um, Matthew 28, 9, you don't have to turn there, just remember the story. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has uh, risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples. Do you remember there on the mountain what they do when they see him? They fall down and they worship him. This happens several times in the gospels. Many times people are worshiping Jesus and falling down their face before him. Now, if you know your Old Testament, and, and even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, People see angelic beings, people see the angel of the Lord, people see all these, these things, and they, they are stricken by fear, and they fall down to worship this thing they're seeing. What happens every time uh, someone falls down to worship an angel in the Old Testament or even in the book of Revelation? The angel says, no, get up, only worship God. But for some reason, the Lord Jesus, when people fall down in front of him and worship him, he does not rebuke them. In fact, he many times blesses them for their faith, as he does the disciples in that moment. And you know John 20, 28, doubting Thomas, now seeing the risen Lord before him, he puts his hands in the scars, and what does he exclaim to Jesus? My Lord and my God, right? Falling down to worship Jesus, he calls Jesus both Lord and God, covering all the names of of the divine essence, Thomas does, and Jesus does not rebuke him. He doesn't say, no, get up, don't use that name, don't use those titles of me, that's not me. No, he says, blessed are you, for you've seen and believed. More blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So Jesus receives worship. Uh, These are things that are characteristic of deity. And that even in the Bible, when these things are attempted towards other beings or other creatures, it is forbidden or prohibited or stopped by God but not by Jesus. He gladly receives prayers, he gladly receives worship, and he gladly receives glory that only God is worthy of. About Jesus in his nature. Now, I, Pastor Matt is right. At, 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 the, at the point of the incarnation, when the eternal Son uh, takes on human flesh, that is the birth of, of the human nature, the human flesh, which we then call Jesus uh, of Nazareth. So, yeah, I understand that, that, that the human nature is not what is eternal, but it is the divine nature, the Son, that becomes flesh. But just to make it simple tonight, we're going we're gonna to still call him Jesus, okay? Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word... The Word was with God. The Word was God. From all eternity past, from all eternity, from time and all eternity, before time, before creation, into the boundless realms of eternity, which we can't even fathom, there was the Word. And the Word from all eternity was with God, and the Word from all eternity was God. Jesus is eternal. This is a fun one for you. Jesus is immutable. Immutable is just a fancy word for saying that he's changeless. 
but you need to know that word because it's one of those classic theological words where we talk about the immutability of God. God cannot change. God cannot grow. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. You know, uh, year and a half ago, maybe two and a half years by now, so one of these previous Mays, I preached a little short mini-series called Matchless. And uh, if you go back and listen, there's one sermon that I entitled, God Can't. And I talked about the things that God can't do. And that kind of, at first, is like, wait a minute, I thought God can do anything. Well, he can't lie, he can't be tempted, he can't sin, he can't change, he can't grow, he can't die. But remember, in those, in those things that we kind of think, what are you saying God can't do these things? Those aren't abilities. Remember? To lie is not some sort of ability. To change is not an ability. That's a problem. To learn is not an ability. It's a problem because it means you must have not known something that you now have to learn. And God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need to grow or learn or change. He certainly can't sin or lie or die or be tempted. So when we look at Jesus, and Hebrews 13.8 declares this in a very strange way for the New Testament. Jesus Christ, remember this? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you're just kind of perusing through the New Testament and you come across that verse you would have to stop and think, wait a minute, there was a change. Jesus Christ, he was eternal God, the Son, but then he, what, became a man. Well, there's a change, right? Not exactly. Because, remember, that eternal divine nature does not cease to be the eternal divine nature in the incarnation. There is no changing, no breaking, no fracturing of the one eternal divine nature of God, even in the incarnation. But what did we say about Philippians? It's subtraction by addition. He empties himself by what? By taking. There's an addition the emptying is in that he becomes a servant. The emptying is that he becomes a servant in the form of a man who dies for us. That's the emptying, not that he ceases to be God. So Jesus Christ and who he is as the one eternal living God never changes. Even in the incarnation, there was no shifting or changing in the divine nature. There was just an adding of the human nature. But Jesus, like God, is immutable. Jesus is creator. We don't have to rehearse these verses we did two weeks ago, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, through whom he also created the worlds, through whom God also, through Jesus, creates the worlds. In Colossians 1.17, by him are all things, they hold together in him, they consist in him. John 1, in the beginning was the word, word with God, word was God. Without him was not anything made that was made. For in him, that is the word, Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus is creator. And as far as I remember the first verse of the Bible correctly, it is 
none other than God who creates all things. Now this last one is fun to me, and we're not going to uh, go through too, too much. I have a lot of verses here. Jesus is I am, and by that I mean he is the divine I am. He is Yahweh. I had put in there all seven of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. You can go find those on your own. Okay? There are seven. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. There's all those that Jesus intentionally begins these phrases with that phrase, I am. Kind of reminding us what God said to Moses at the burning bush, right? Or on the mountain, he says, what shall, or the burning bush, what shall I tell them your name is? And God says, my name is, I am that I am. And Yahweh is actually a sort of noun form of that verb to be, I am. And so Jesus, again and again, uses that of himself. Uh, but I want us to look at two places in particular. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 58 John chapter 8, verse 58. This is sort of a showdown with the religious leaders uh, and the Jewish unbelievers. And Jesus knows exactly what he's saying here, by the way. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, this isn't the conversation of Jesus, uh, them asking Jesus, who do you think you are? Like, you, Abraham is our father. Who do you think you are? And Jesus' response to that, well, it's fine that you say Abraham is your father. In fact, I know Abraham too, but because before he was, I am. He doesn't say I was. He doesn't use that past tense. Before Abraham was, I was. He could have used that, it's correct, but he decides to use that emphatic before Abraham was, I am. And they know exactly what he's saying because in verse 59, they take up stones to throw at him. They know what he's saying and they think he's blaspheming by claiming to be the I am. That's the only reason they would take up stones to throw at him and kill him. Another instance is in John 18. You don't have to turn there. Uh, John 18, verses 4 through 5, at Jesus' arrest. They come and... They're going to arrest Jesus in the garden, and um, they say, Are you Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ? And Jesus says to their question in the garden, I am. Do you remember what, you remember what happens when he says that phrase to them there in the garden? It's not in all the, for some reason, it's left out of all the passion plays and all the movies. But when they come to arrest Jesus, and they say, Are you him? And Jesus says, I am. It says everyone there stumbles back and falls to the ground at the power and the glory of Jesus using the divine name of himself, I am. Now this last one is fun to me, and we don't have time to turn there, but I want you to circle and highlight this last one. Uh, this is great, great stuff for your Jehovah's Witness visitors, okay? Jesus is, lastly tonight, Jesus is Lord. And I use the capitals, not just for your blanks, but on purpose, that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is Jehovah of the Old Testament. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, do you know what Joel 2, 32 says? Anybody just off the top of your head? 
Joel 2.32. I bet you know Romans 10.13. For everyone who says it, Jennifer, what do you say? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many of you knew that Paul was quoting Joel 2.32? You know that? Joel 2.32 is talking about Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the one true and living God, saving people who turn to him. Judgment is coming. Call upon Yahweh to be saved. The one true and living God. And Paul turns around in Romans 10.13 and uses that same verse. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Yahweh will be saved. But who is Yahweh according to Paul? You know Romans 10.9? If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you will confess that the Lord is who? Jesus. And then he comes back in verse 13 and says, and everyone who calls upon that Lord, Jesus, will be saved. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's unapologetically using a verse about Yahweh from the Old Testament and attributing it to Jesus to say, if you will call upon the name of Jesus, that is calling upon the name of Yahweh and you will be saved. Two more here at the end. Isaiah 45, 23. Isaiah 45, 23, the Lord says to Isaiah, now this is going to sound familiar, maybe you'll, you'll recognize it. He says to Isaiah, for to me, that's Yahweh, if you have your Jehovah's Witnesses there, you need to make them read all of Isaiah uh, 45 right there with you because they'll emphasize Jehovah, 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 right, and they're right. And it says, to me, Isaiah 45, 23, to me, Jehovah, Yahweh, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And does that sound familiar? Sounds like Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, that because of Jesus' humiliation, therefore God has highly exalted him. Listen to this. And he's given him the name that is above every name. He's given the man Jesus the name that is above every name. And what is the name that is above every name? Except the name of Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. And then Paul ends it in Philippians 2.11 by saying what? 2.10.11. That at the name of Jesus, who is Yahweh? Because God's given him that name. At the name of Jesus, what does it say? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I love all that. And you can go find entire lists of where Paul uses those Old Testament quotations, which are about Yahweh... And he shamelessly uses them about Jesus time and time and time again. And go find those lists. That's just two wonderful examples that you can pull up anytime for your Jehovah's Witness friends. They get real nervous real fast, and they got to leave real fast after you start introducing that stuff. So show them how Paul clearly teaches Jesus is Yahweh. All right, that's all we got time for tonight. Uh, come back next week. We'll talk about the humanity of Christ. And then in two weeks... We'll do a little historical survey about some of these uh, controversies over um, the person and work of Christ.
Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting with us tonight. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here and uh, ask that you would fill us with your presence and your peace and help us to understand better who you are and help us to serve you and worship you better uh, because of having known you more. Um, Jesus, fill us with your love and your peace and your kindness for you, for each other, and for a lost world. It's in your name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.